1: The pandemic transformed the way we talk about the world. Our everyday vocabulary became infected with lockdown, quarantine, Zoom. And for central bankers, from the start of 2021, one word started cropping up with alarming regularity.
2: Transitory. Transitory.
1: Transitory. That was how they wanted to describe what was happening with Prices. Prices were rising as everyone was trying to buy a new car or new home exercise equipment or anything that could make this new existence less awful. But supply chains were all gummed up. The Fed insisted that this situation, too much demand, not enough supply, would be short-lived. Here's Chair Jerome Powell in July.
2: What I mean by transitory is just something that doesn't leave a permanent mark on the inflation process.
1: At the end of last year, as prices hit multi-decade highs, he tried to hedge.
2: So I think the word transitory has different meanings to different people. We tend to use it to mean that it, that it won't leave a permanent Before
1: conceding,
2: mark. I think it's, it's probably a good time to retire that word.
1: But it was too late. Last month, Powell made a simple and stunning admission.
2: We've had price stability for a very long time and, and maybe come to take it for granted. But now we see the pain. I'm old enough to remember what very high inflation was like.
1: The Fed had let inflation get out of control. In other words, it had failed. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes, and today's show is the second in our two-part series on the future of central banking. Last week, we looked at why central banks have been expanding their remit to tackle everything from inequality to climate change. Today, we're going to examine whether that's led the world's most important central bank to get dangerously distracted.
3: It seemed to me that there was an act of what you might say is a bit of complacency on the part of central bankers here.
1: We'll also look to parallels with an earlier era, when a combination of expansionary fiscal policy and slow-to-act monetary policy also led to rising prices.
4: You all got to think uh, round the clock, too, while you, before you get sick, as to where we can get a real, articulate, able, tough guy that can take this Federal Reserve place.
1: And we'll ask what the Fed should do now to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past.
5: I think certainly more than this currently expects is going to be necessary, given how bad the inflation problem has got.
1: But with prices in America rising at their fastest rate in 40 years, will that be enough? Inflation watching used to be the preserve of wonks in stuffy Washington, D.C. offices. And don't worry, we'll get to them in a second. But now, nearly a fifth of Americans say that inflation is the country's most important problem.
0: We're riding out the inflation the best we can. Well, I notice it in almost every product. Uh, Fruits, vegetables, deli
6: products. I can't really see anywhere that the prices have gone down but they've gone up.
0: The food is up. Everything's high.
1: While many blame President Joe Biden, the reality is that the Fed is the institution that has the tools to stop rising prices. The result is the highest inflation in a rich world economy in three decades. So what went wrong? As we told you last week, our US economics editor Simon Rabinovich was on a tour of Fed policy watchers attempting to answer that question. And now he's here with us to tell us what he found. Hi, Simon. How's D.C.?
3: Uh, D.C. is lovely. Uh, Spring is in full swing. The cherry blossoms are still around. It's a nice time to be here.
1: I am almost jealous, but I do not miss the summer that is round the corner. So, Simon, you were the lucky correspondent who got to investigate our cover story last week, looking at this question of whether the Fed failed to act. Where did you start
3: well, I started in some ways, Samea, with what you discussed at the beginning of this show, which was the dramatic U-turn that Jerome Powell made last month. There's many different reasons why prices are rising in America and elsewhere as well, of course. But it seemed to me that there was also an act of what you might say is a bit of complacency on the part of central bankers here, and not just central bankers. I mean, investors, analysts, economists writ large believe that high inflation you know hard to control inflation was something that more or less had been consigned to history but with prices at the end of last year you know continuing to rise when some people had thought that they might begin to dissipate in fact the most recent inflation reading was 8.5% year on year the fastest in four decades the fed had to swing into action belatedly and it swung into action in quite a big way i think we'll see that At the next meeting early in May, where where they're expected to do what you might think of as a double interest rate increase, instead of 25 basis points, they'll raise rates by 50 basis points. That's a half percentage point. And the expectation is that they'll follow that up with two more meetings, two more double rate increases. So it's a very, very substantial tightening. And it's completely different from what members of the Fed's rate setting committee were expecting you know, this time last year. This time last year, they were thinking that there was not going to be a single rate increase this year.
1: Yeah, the the Fed doesn't really seem to do drama-free U-turns, I guess just being such a, a big beast. But how do you think that the Fed got it so wrong? And maybe because we're being kind, maybe start with the most generous version of events.
3: Right. We're being kind because, of course, it's not just the Fed. It really is the analyst community and investor community writ large. But I think the, the most generous interpretation to start with is that the Fed was fighting the last war. That was a question that I put to Bill Dudley, who ran the New York branch of the Federal Reserve for much of the past decade post the financial crisis.
6: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head they, they were fighting the last war. The last war was about inflation expectations being soft rather than firm it was about a recovery that wasn't very strong. It was a very slow, long, difficult journey back to full employment during the last cycle. And this cycle, completely different. Fiscal policy, much more aggressive. The causes of the downturn were very different. The scarring of the economy this time, much less than following the great financial crisis. So I think you learn the lessons of the last economic cycle, and you try to fix the things that didn't work that well, and I think they just overdid it.
1: Let's talk about what he just mentioned there, fiscal policy. I remember furious debates over the size of the stimulus, whereas it now seems much closer to the consensus that the stimulus was too big. uh, And that's been a major contributor to the inflation that we're now seeing. Do you agree that that's now the the consensus?
3: Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, just as a brief reminder for our listeners, there are two big, stimulus checks that were mailed out under Donald Trump. And then there was a third one at the beginning of the Biden administration. But if you just look at the size of the federal government's deficit, the budget deficit in 2020, and then in 2021, it was roughly 15% of GDP for two years running. That's massive. And it's especially massive when in fact there was already something of a natural bounce back from the closures at the height of the pandemic. And then, of course, on top of the fiscal stimulus, you also had very aggressive monetary stimulus because the Federal Reserve's monetary policy was so extraordinarily loose. So there were some economists who were very skeptical um, that all of this was going to end in potential trouble, including high inflation. One of those economists that I spoke with was Sonal Desai, a chief investment officer for Franklin Templeton, fixed income, a big asset manager.
0: When fiscal policy expanded so much, the Fed should have started removing stimulus. There was no reason to have both massively expansionary fiscal policy together with massively expansionary monetary policy at a time that the economy was likely to start growing strongly anyway simply because the artificial piece, which was holding the economy back, if you want to call it that, which was the COVID-related shutdowns, those were in the process of being unwound. So to me, this is where the origin is.
3: Another very prominent critic of the size of the stimulus early last year was Jason Furman. He's an economist at Harvard University He also had been the head of President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. He's calculated roughly how much of the high inflation that we're now seeing is a result of of that fiscal policy.
4: When I do models that ask the counterfactual, what would have happened if we hadn't done the December and March fiscal expansions, the fiscal expansions for 2021, I get inflation being one to four percentage points below what it actually was. So that means the majority of the excess core inflation was due to fiscal policy. That being said, we don't really usually have very high standards for fiscal policy makers. We think they're pretty political responding to elections and the like. And so the fact that the Fed in some sense moved second after fiscal policy moved first and didn't change its move and is supposed to be a technocratic body might be even more concerning, even if it didn't add as much to inflation in the year 2021. So I
3: think it's really fascinating that this is the direction in which the discussion has evolved. Last year, the focus on inflation was all about supply chains and when they might get back to normal. And so I think the focus point of the debate right now is that, given that you had this incredible fiscal push was it irresponsible of the Fed not to begin to withdraw some of its monetary stimulus earlier on?
1: I guess in this particular story of inflation in the Fed, there's a key moment in, in August of 2020, which we haven't talked about just yet. This is when Jay Powell spoke at the annual central banking conference in Jackson Hole. And, and I remember this because he announced that the Fed was changing the way that it manages inflation
2: We will seek to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. Therefore, following periods when inflation has been running below 2%, appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time.
1: That's the key thing. So instead of obsessively going for an inflation rate of 2% exactly, they're going to chill out. They're going to be okay with an average. That solved another problem that the Fed had been dealing with, which is that sometimes it was prone to tightening too quickly at the expense of jobs
2: growth. With regard to the employment side of our mandate, our revised statement emphasises that maximum employment is a broad-based and inclusive goal. This change reflects our appreciation for the benefits of a strong labour market, particularly for many in low and moderate income communities.
1: This is what we talked about last week with Rachana Sharnbog, our our finance editor, as one of the ways the Fed was broadening its remit to account for inequality. Simon, what do you make of the idea that this was a distraction and and in some sense caused their recent mistake?
3: I don't know if it's possible to draw a direct causality between the broadening of the goal and the misstep. I think with this recovery over the past 18 months there was this belief that as before the pandemic, they could let the employment market, the labor market get extremely tight. Inflation wouldn't take off. And that would be good for the broader objectives of having a very inclusive recovery and inclusive economy. And so indeed, I think when critics of the Fed look at where it may have gone wrong, they say that broadly speaking the principles that guide the fed they talk about the flexible average inflation targeting framework which is the newish monetary policy framework in principle the belief is that it's a good idea the concern is with the way in which it was implemented so here's jason Furman talking about that
4: it was their statements where they said we're not going to lift off until we've achieved maximum employment That they abandoned the balancing, which central banks have to do. And you have to balance how far away are you from your employment goal? How far away are you from your inflation goal? The other thing was the asymmetry. They said, we are not going to act until we actually see inflation. They don't want, they didn't want to do what they did in the last cycle, which is anticipate there might be inflation. So we need to get ahead of it. I think that was okay. But then when they actually saw inflation, they flipped that on its head and said, sure, there's a lot of inflation, but we forecast the inflation is going to go away on its own so we don't need to act now. So it was that asymmetry of we're going to wait until we see the inflation, but once we see it, we're going to make a forecast that's going to go away. That wasn't actually in the framework. That was something they essentially improvised over the course of 2021. Another
3: related criticism is that the Fed should have corrected earlier on Here's what Bill Dudley thinks is going on.
6: Well, I think the Fed was unlucky, but they contributed to the bad outcome, and it's hard to allocate the blame for that. I think that it would have been nice if they had started to remove monetary accommodation, you know, six nine months earlier. You know, for example, they didn't even end the asset purchase program until March last month, which is really sort of remarkable when you think about it. You know, that could have been tapered down a lot more quickly, a lot sooner.
1: Do you agree with Bill that the Fed should have done anything differently?
3: Well, I mean, hindsight being 2020, of course, I agree with Bill. Uh, But I think, you know, more accurately, if you think back to sort of late last summer, early into the autumn, at that point, the Fed was still so trepidatious about talking about the end of easy policy. You know, there is this joke about talking about talking about tapering quantitative easing. And I think that really was far too late. So it's not that they should have started to necessarily tighten monetary policy, last year. But at the very least, they should have been moving more quickly to the end of the extraordinary accommodation. And I think that was relatively clear at the time, and it's abundantly clear right now with hindsight. Adam Posen, the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, uh, agreed with Bill Dudley that the Fed should have changed its course earlier on.
6: I think the Fed should have been announcing
3: in the first quarter, frankly, no later than the second quarter a year ago, we got our forecast wrong. We have to think about tightening in the near future. Inflation is going to exceed what we have expected. And so to me, the mistake was not recognizing and admitting the mistake roughly a year ago. And Adam Posen added that there were other forces at play, something that people, you know, whether they're into economics or not, can most definitely relate to. Committees have inertia. Ideally, central banks should be completely shameless about saying, whoops, I made a mistake. I've got to fix it. But they're not.
1: Yes, I think we can all relate to that. After all of that analysis of, of what went wrong, I'm curious about how lasting the effects are likely to be. Do you think that it's now too late to get prices under control?
3: Well, I suppose the good news from an inflation control perspective is that the Fed can most definitely get prices under control. They have the ability to do that. So the Fed is late to the game, but they are going to be raising rates. They're going to be raising rates aggressively. And when they do that, that will, in time, be able to wrestle inflation back, not to the ground, but to that 2% range that we're all accustomed to. The real question now is, What's going to be the cost of doing that? And so these days, the debate is not, is inflation transitory or persistent? The debate is, is this tightening going to be recessionary or not? You know, historically, the record is that when the Fed begins tightening, especially aggressive tightening, it does exact a real toll on the economy. It does tend to lead to recessions. The most famous, of course, is in the early 1980s, after a decade plus of high inflation, Paul Volcker, the head then of the Fed, raised interest rates beyond levels which anybody is used to these days, you know, into the double digits, and that was enough to control inflation, but it also was very damaging for economic growth. It won the Fed hard-earned credibility that has lasted until this day, but of course it also has set the precedent that when inflation is really high, sometimes the central bank is responsible to do things that do hurt the economy.
1: Simon, I'm so glad that you mentioned Paul Volcker there, uh, because after the break, we are going to go deeper into one particular moment in America's economic history that could hold lessons for today's central bankers.
3: OK, I think I know where you're going with this one, Samaya.
1: Don't just, don't, don't give it away. Say nothing.
3: <laughs> Lips are sealed.
1: Simon, thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Samaya.
1: Before we get to our exciting history lesson, If you want to read Simon's report in full, might I suggest a subscription to The Economist? You could even check out my piece, A Guide to Britain's Cost of Living Crunch, if you want to know what's going on on the other side of the pond. You can get a special rate by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. In last week's episode, our finance editor, Rachna Sharnbog, who we'll hear from again in a little bit, told us about the evolving role of central banks, including that moment in the early 1980s that Simon just told us about. Surging prices and then surging interest rates and then recession. Now that might all sound scarily familiar, but for current Fed watchers, today's surging prices are reminiscent of a different era an era of tie-dye, twisting, and turmoil, the 1960s. William McChesney Martin Jr. was a bespectacled tennis-playing Puritan. In 1938, at the age of 31, he became the youngest ever and first paid President of the New York Stock Exchange.
2: And a new smaller board of governors welcomes the youngest chief the exchange has had, William McChesney Martin, Jr.
4: The most pressing need today is to start the flow of capital which turns the wheels of industry. The New York Stock Exchange plays a vital part in this process.
1: By 1951, he had set his sights on Washington, when he took over as the head of the Federal Reserve. When Martin first took office, consumer prices were rising slowly and steadily by less than 2% a year. But by the time Martin stepped down from the Fed in January 1970, prices were rising by 5% a year. At a gathering to mark his retirement, instead of a victory lap, he offered an apology. He told the gathering, we are in very deep trouble.
4: Members of the House.
1: The trouble started with President Lyndon B. Johnson, who took office after President Kennedy I was assassinated.
4: Know. All I have I would have given gladly not to be standing here today.
1: In the wake of the assassination, Martin wrote Johnson a supportive letter.
4: Uh. Well, I just wanted to thank you for your most uh, thoughtful and generous letter, and I appreciate it so much, and I feel uh, quite comfortable and get strength from the knowledge that you are at that desk. Well, that's very nice of you, Mr. President. i was just delighted to do anything I can to be a threat. You can count on me completely. Well, you just assume that you're starting with someone that doesn't know much about your shop, and then you start to tell me what I ought to know about it.
1: Even after Martin raised rates in the wake of Johnson's re-election in 1964, relations between the two remained cordial. But in 1965, at his State of the Union address... Johnson set out an ambitious social program, calling for a great society.
4: The great society asks not how much, but how good.
1: The building of which did not come cheap. And it wasn't the only thing burning a hole in the government's pocket that year.
0: The message of their presence on Vietnamese soil is plain.
1: In July, Johnson announced an escalation in the Vietnam War.
4: I do not find it easy to send the flower of our youth, our finest young men, into battle.
1: To fund all this, like most politicians, Johnson didn't want to raise taxes by that much. So he borrowed instead, cheaply. And cheaper than if the Federal Reserve had been tightening the screws on monetary policy. Speaking of the Fed, despite their chumminess, Martin was watching Johnson's fiscal expansion with concern— he could see that this loose fiscal policy would be inflationary. So he raised rates again at the end of 1965. This time, Johnson was furious. He rang up his Treasury Secretary, Henry Fowler, and asked him to find a replacement for Martin. Then, Henry,
4: You all got to think a little, around the clock too, while, before you get sick, as to where we can get a real articulate, able, tough guy that can take this Federal Reserve place
1: but then discovered that he couldn't, in fact, fire the Fed chair. So he asked Martin to his ranch in Texas. There, he tried sweet-talking Martin into lowering rates, but ended up shoving the much shorter Martin up against a wall. Martin stood firm. The next year, he tried convincing Johnson to raise taxes.
4: I think the surest way to keep... uh Interest rates from uh, going up here is to go for uh, an increase in corporate and personal income taxes. Now I know what a problem that is for you. And as Secretary McNamara said... But Johnson didn't
1: budge. And here's the thing. Martin's Fed, it stopped tightening during this time, even as prices continued to creep higher. And I have to be honest, it's not entirely clear why. Was it the political climate? The fact that there was a wartime economy? Was it bad analysis? What's clearest is that by the time they did start raising interest rates significantly in 1967, it was too late. Even though by that point, Johnson had finally relented and urged Congress to pass a tax increase.
4: I recommend to the Congress a surcharge of 6% on both corporate and individual income taxes.
1: Subsequent interest rate increases and higher taxes didn't stop prices from rising. Inflation had become baked in. So that's a lesson in what not to do. But what should the Fed do now? To figure out the answer, I am joined by two colleagues, Rachna, who we spoke to last week. Ratchner, hello. Hi, Tameya. I'm also joined by Henry Kerr, our economics editor. Henry, hi. Hello. Okay, let's start with your assessment of what's going on. As we heard from Simon earlier, the Fed has pivoted dramatically to being quite hawkish, something like five or six rate hikes this year. Henry, do you think the Fed has gone far enough?
5: I think it probably hasn't. Uh, The plans that are priced into markets now are mostly about getting the federal funds rate, the interest rate, back in the area in which most economists would say it's not stimulating the economy, but it's not holding the economy back much either. It goes a little bit above that estimated level, which is sort of two to three percentage points, but not very far above. And when you look at how high underlying inflation is in the US now, you know, core inflation of 6.5%, wage growth of close to 6%, it's hard to see that that will be enough to constrain inflation, given that the usual rule for getting inflation under control is that you have to raise rates by more above that neutral level than inflation has gone up. So that would point to rates in the uh, zone of 5 to 6%, and that's not currently expected. But I think certainly more than this currently expected is going to be necessary, given how bad the inflation problem has got.
1: Rachna, thinking back to what we were discussing last week, how do you feel this episode is going to shape the role of central banks?
7: Well, I suppose that's sort of why central banks were made independent to begin with, because they had to make decisions between taming inflation or provoking a recession. What will happen going forward? I mean, uh, one reason why central banks might have ended up doing more and more is because with inflation low and their balance sheets large, they felt like they could try and achieve other objectives at the same time as they tried to provoke inflation. Now it seems like that emphasis on fighting inflation is going to be sort of front and centre for central banks. And it's true. I mean, what happens next and the extent to which inflation falls back, the extent to which unemployment might have to rise could well shape the way central banks are perceived for decades to come.
5: I think the Interesting question here with respect to the Fed is where the Fed has gone wrong is probably by focusing too much on the employment side of its mandate over the past 18 months and not enough on the inflation side, which is a slightly more sort of traditional policy error than getting distracted by a whole load of other goals. So as well as this uh, movement of central banking globally towards a broader set of goals, uh, I think there's an interesting question the extent to which between the traditional goals, if you like, of inflation and unemployment, the dial might move back towards inflation. I, th- I think it probably will.
1: I guess there is a question about how confident central banks feel. Like, if their rate hikes do bring on a recession, are they able to to cope with the potential backlash that would, would come along with that?
5: Hmm. We had a really good free exchange column on this not long ago. There's a slight paradox with inflation fighting, which is that everyone inside economics, views inflation fighting as a sort of technocratic, anti-populist maneuver. The economists and the central bank governors are the adults in the room. And it's the politicians who really want to blow up the economy and let inflation run out of control. But in actual fact, the economic evidence that high but single digit inflation is really economically damaging isn't that strong. But people really hate it. So there is actually a case that fighting inflation is a kind of quasi-populist move. And I think the extent to which there's a backlash depends on What's more unpopular, Uh, high employment and high inflation? Certainly, uh, high inflation is a big political problem for a lot of governments right now.
1: Henry, you know, I was just talking about William McChesney Martin Jr., and and how he both stood firm against Johnson's attempts to intervene in monetary policy, but also how he was slow to act even when he saw inflationary pressures building. Um, I didn't get to mention this earlier, but Martin is also responsible for one of the most quoted maxims about central banking. I mean, it's you know as far as these things go, uh, he said the Fed is the chaperone who has ordered the punch bowl removed just when the party is really warming up. So the Fed is is the party pooper, essentially. Um, but actually, what you're saying is sometimes what you need is a responsible guardian of the party so so that everyone can have some safe fun.
5: Well, people don't like hangovers, am I right?
1: I don't think we're going to be asked to organise any parties anytime soon. But... Nor are
7: central bankers.
1: <laughs> uh, OK, let's get back on track. Um, Rajna, again, thinking about this this kind of question of what central banks are doing. What do you think this episode means for the future of central banks' mandates?
7: Well, as we were sort of talking about earlier, it seems hard to think that this expansion and mandate will sort of continue unchecked, partly because, as Henry was saying, high inflation is unpopular politically. It's unpopular with the public. Everybody's suddenly been reminded of why they don't like inflation. So, you know the core job of a central bank is going to become sort of ever more important and be seen to be important and I think in a time when central banks had large balance sheets and when when inflation was low it seemed sort of convenient to ask them to do more things but as inflation starts rising as the balance sheets start to shrink trying to achieve more goals might start to become harder. And also the sort of popularity of fighting inflation might start to rise. So it sort of seems that this sort of expansion in central banks' mandates might start to come to an end.
1: One thing that I really enjoyed about Ratchman's special report was this sense of divergence among the different central banks, right? There definitely isn't one vision of how to do monetary policy of what should be the remit of a central bank. The Fed now has this average inflation targeting 2% over some ill-defined cycle. The Bank of England has a target of you know 2. That's it. Um Rachna, do you think that there will be different responses to this across the central banks in terms of I guess what they learn or or how they proceed?
7: Yeah, I think um there's bound to be some divergence or some variation in how central banks think about this partly because As I discovered while researching the special report, every central bank is sort of a product of the society and the political environment of the country in which it's based. But also because the nature of the inflation problem is different in different places. So you know, it's in America that the overheat is most evident, that inflation is not driven only by an energy shock or supply chain disruptions. That's less clear in in Europe, for example. So it seems to make sense that there's a risk that inflation will stay high and stay above target over the next few years in America rather than in Europe. So as a result, this kind of question about raising the inflation target might become a hotter subject in America than in Europe. And also the question of how scary inflation is is something that's quite hotly debated within the euro area. So, for example, Germans are notoriously inflation-averse, and that might make it hard to imagine the European Central Bank's inflation target being raised as a result.
5: Can I just jump in there? I think that one of the implications of what's happened in the US is people will look back on the switch to average inflation targeting, which is the switch that took place in August 2020, as a mistake. And some people will blame that framework for what's happened. The fact is that switching to average inflation targeting in the US did not imply that the Fed should have let inflation rise as high as it has to 8.5% on the CPI measure they've failed to implement the new framework. So it's not actually clear that average inflation targeting is, in principle, a bad thing. There's lots to be said for it. It's just the kind of execution that has gone very badly wrong. And I don't know whether maybe that makes the Fed more conservative in the future about changing the framework. But the fact is, it's in this position now where the chances are that it's going to face this uncomfortable choice. You know, squeezing inflation out of the economy isn't very pleasant. Changing your inflation target isn't very pleasant. It has to hope that it gets lucky and the problem sort of goes goes away on its own if it's going to avoid these hard choices.
7: Yeah, I think what's really striking is that the Fed may have realised that it was fighting the last war. So what does that now mean about how it thinks about fighting wars? You know, does it now become quicker to think about changes to its framework? In a sense, that could lead to it to be keener to make changes and rather than more conservative, potentially. It sounds like there's going to be a
1: lot of central banking fodder for us to write about over the next few years. Henry, Ratchner, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Samir. Thank you. Our thanks, too, to Simon and his many guests on his tour of the Fed Wonk universe. Sonal Desai, Jason Furman, Adam Posen, and Bill Dudley. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you like us, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have any questions, you can write to us at podcasts at Today's show was made by Harriet Noble, Kevin Caners, and Kim Gittelson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. I'm Sameer Keynes, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating,